So this morning, as we dig into God's word this morning, I, I want to take a few minutes to talk a bit about the campaign before we jump into the word. So why don't you go ahead and grab your Bibles and turn to Revelation chapter 4. Revelation chapter 4 is going to be this morning. If you have a Bible on you this morning, if you throw your hand up, we'd love to get a Bible into your hands. If you forgot your Bible or didn't bring a Bible, if you don't own a Bible, for sure grab one of these and take it home as our gift to you. And go to Revelation chapter 4. As you're turning there, here's what, what's so exciting about what we're looking to see God do. We want to see God transform lives. Why would we do this? Because we, we see that by us reaching out with, with smaller churches going into our towns, we believe that we can see God do far more. And here's the crazy part, that he would use us to do it that God would use us to be a part of his mission. Now, how's it gonna happen? For that to happen, we've been saying all along that each one of us is gonna have to look at taking a step forward in our involvement and in our, and in our investment. That we take a step forward in our involvement and our investment. So for involvement, what do I mean by that? Well, we, we've looked at our church kind of dividing right down the middle with a Huntsville, Utterson, Port Sydney people going to plant that church and the, the Bracebridge, Muskoka Lakes, Gravenhurst, Port Carling people here and, and our volunteers pretty much divide right down the middle. And so it looks like as we launch this thing out in 2019 that we're, we're gonna have the right amount, the right people to, to get this thing going. But here's what I would say. We do need people to continue to step forward in their involvement because even those people are like, yeah, I think we've got enough to cover this there are people who would stand up even right now and go, yeah, but man, I'm tired. I could use help carrying the load. And so we're looking for people to take a step forward in their involvement. Now, what does that mean to take a step forward? Well, well it means looking at where you're at and then saying, hey, where's the next step for me to take? So if you're thinking about this way, the kind of the four steps you could take in involvement, first step is this. If you just kind of come to Harvest and you're like, I, I sort of show up every once in a while, that's kind of, I think it's my church, that you would take a step forward and begin to attend that you would choose which location. Like, this is, the, this is the church I'm going to attend. This is the one I'm going to come to. And I want to start coming regular to this church and saying, this is my church family. Take a step forward in attendance. Maybe you're already there, and the next step for you would be taking a step forward in serving, where you would say, you know what? I, I've been coming, and I've been coming regular. This is my church. I don't just show up every once in a while. No, I'm here to worship together with this family, and, and I want to serve. I, I don't really serve anywhere. I want to step up and see where God could use me, that you take that step in this season of serving. Or maybe you're, you're already serving, and then what can I do next? What's the next step I could take? And, and that'd be to commit, to commit, to say, you know what, I, I want to go deeper in what I serve. I want to join a small group. I want to learn what it is to say, this is my church where I serve, and so I want to commit to this thing. Uh, I want to, hey, what, what courses could I jump into that we're offering here at our church? How can I be trained up to serve in other ways? I want to get into a small group and say, this is my church family. I want to walk with people and care for the needs of others as they care for the needs that I have, and that you would commit to this. Maybe that's where you are. What's the next step you could take? And another step you could take then is to own it. To own it and say, this is my church. I want to move forward and say, I want to be a member of this church. What's membership all about? It's about saying, this is my family. That I care about this, that I, I'm invested in this, and, and you also have an open door into my life to care for me and invest in me. That's what we mean when we say membership, that you're saying, I, I'm owning this together. This is my family, and I want to take that step forward and saying, this is where I serve. This is where I'm on the mission that Christ has called me to. You, you step forward in involvement. Also, though, we're asking each one of us to take a step forward in our investment as well. This morning, just to help us as we figure out what does that mean to take a step forward in investment, so thankful to have Gary Webster, our treasurer, and Jim Beatty, who's really helped us get the whole campaign together, done all the research on the numbers, on, on, on how you can make these things work well. And they're, they're going to be out this morning in the foyer out there, and they have a handout with a lot more detail in it about the numbers. Maybe you're the kind of person you're like, you know, listen, guy, yeah, yeah, vision, I get all that, but I want to know some numbers. They're going to be out there if you have any questions do you want to grab them and say, hey, I, I got questions about this. I'm not sure how this works. I, well, I want to know more about, you've got this bridge loan. How does that thing play out? And, and do we have enough? Are we able to raise the funds we need to raise? And do you be able to grab those guys after the service and be able to ask all the questions that you want to ask? Because here's the thing, I understand this, that, that not only do we need to take a step forward in investment because we need to raise $1.2 million. We have to raise that for us to move into this building in Huntsville. That's what it'll cost us to be able to say we're moving forward in Huntsville, 1.2. That's a lot of money. 
And then on top of that, we're looking to finish the, the building in, uh, in Perry Sound. So that's usable there. We're looking to say, well, what's God have for Bracebridge and Muskoka Lakes and Graveners? What's he have for us here in, in this town? We want to raise more money so that at the end of these three years, that maybe whatever God has planned for us, we can take another step of faith in that direction. But even on top of that, to launch a new church, operating costs go up. There's costs that way as well. So, so that not only do we have to, to build it, we have to actually to see if the, the, the thing would run well. And now, if you stop by the table out there, there's going to be more detail about what's that going to cost? Have we thought through those? We have. We have. We've got numbers set in place, and the numbers we're including for the operational costs moving forward, we thought we want to include everything in there we can. We want to we actually go high on that. Go, let, let's, with wisdom, think of all the things that will cost us in this new building. We're hoping, by God's grace, not to have to spend that much. Are there creative ways we can lower that number? One of the ways we're looking at is the staffing needs to launch a new location. That as we launch this thing out, maybe instead of just jumping right into a full staffing need, we're talking with the current staff we have now. What's it look like for us to share the load? To say, let's be more creative in how we do our staffing so we can, we can do both at the same time. We can, we can share the load. We can split ourselves between the two towns. We're looking, maybe we'll have to hire, but maybe we hire more part-time and maybe we hire somebody who can take care of many roles instead of having one full-time for each slot that's needed. Maybe we can raise up more volunteers to partner with staff to see this thing through. Those are the kind of things we're thinking about, but we need us all to take this step forward in investment. What's that mean? Well, find where you are and take a, a step forward. Not everyone's going to be able to give the same way. For sure, not everybody can give the same amount, but that's not what we're asking for. We're just saying this. Would you see where you are and take a step forward? Maybe for you, the first step is just to start giving. Maybe you've never given before. You've ne never actually given to, to the mission of the church. And you're like, you know what? I, I need to start doing this. This is my church home. I, I'm going to start to give. Maybe that's your step. Maybe secondly, your step could be, I, I want to give consistently. I don't want to just give every once in a while and kind of when I show up sometimes and I'll put a bit in the plate, but no, I want to actually like give consistently. Maybe, maybe that's the step you're going to take. Or, or maybe you'll take the third step of giving intentionally. And what do I mean by that? Where you actually look at your budget for the year and you go, okay, Lord, what's yours in this? I mean, it's all yours, but Lord, how much am I gonna, gonna give? What, what percentage of what we have coming in do we need to budget and, and, and then pay attention to that? Because Lord, if you bless me more, I don't always have to raise my standard of living. I could raise my standard of giving and, and you would start to intentionally give. What in church world they call a tithe, right? It just means a 10th. It just means you, you take a percentage of what God's blessed you with. You go, I wanna give my first fruits to what God's got going on. That you take that step of intentionally giving. Or maybe in this season, you would see, Lord, I want to take a step of giving sacrificially. Or above and beyond, where, where I actually have to, have to not do something in order to give what I'm going to give. I actually have to change some lifestyle that I've got. I have to actually lower something in order to do this, that I would give sacrificially in this season. Maybe that's the step that God's calling you on this year. But for all of us, that we would take this step. And so here's what we're doing next Sunday to help us kind of take all the praying we've been doing over the summer, all the, the seeking the Lord on this, and let's take that move, that step four. What will it look like? Well, next Sunday, you'll notice on your chair, there are these envelopes. Inside those, there are two cards. We call them our, our, our pledge cards, our commitment card. And, and here's why there's two. You take one of those for yourself. You're gonna hold on to one of those after you fill it out and say, this is my reminder of what I'm committing to the Lord. Say, I wanna do this over the next three years. The other one you're gonna bring to next Sunday. And as the plate goes by, we're gonna put our pledge cards in. Now here's what we're not doing with those, all right? It's not like you're gonna be gathered up and then we're, we're gonna have the giving police come track you down. If in these three years, you don't commit, you don't follow through on the, the pledge. No, it, this is for you. This is for you to go, I want to see what I'm going to do before the Lord and make the commitment. And then for us, as these go to our, our bookkeeper to compile them all, no one else is going to look at these, to compile them all to see here's what it looks like moving forward. Here's the budget we can actually build on this. Here's, here's what we can actually do. And, and it's going to determine how long it takes us to launch in. It'll determine what other things we can finish as we move forward. We want to get a, an understanding of where everyone's going to be at as we look at this. So you fill it out. Basically, there's a top line where maybe there's a, a large gift you're going to start with. Go, I want to just put this in for now. This is going to be my 2018. I just want to give one gift before I also look at how I'm going to commit to continue through weekly, bi-weekly, monthly, annually. And you fill that out. You kind of think through, okay, over the next three years, what's it look like in our budget? 
Lord, what can we do to, I already give to the church, but what can I add to that on this one campaign? Lord, how much could we do? And you, you, you prayerfully come up with the numbers. You bring that next Sunday. You can drop that in the plate and we move on from there to see what the Lord has for us. Now in all of that, as I talk through finances and money and taking steps forward, I, I wanna remind us though of what the verse that's been on my heart through this whole thing in Ephesians uh, Chapter three, verse 20, it's gonna be on the screen here for you. It says this, now to him who is able to do far more abundantly all that we ask or think. Now, I just love that. That God already in 10 years has already been answering that prayer. He's done far more, far more beyond our little grasp that we think we can go far more than we could do if we, if we just said it's all resting on our finances, far more than if it rested on our skills and gifting. God's done that. God's done that. And we're, we're like, man, we want God to do even more. But Paul says this, he goes, now to him who's able to do far more abundantly all that we ask or think according to the power at work in us, verse 21, to him be the glory in the church and in Christ Jesus throughout all generations forever and ever, amen. I, mean, I love that. It's, it's almost like Paul, Paul gets to verse 21 and it, it's like the whole idea of verse 20 hits his heart. Man, God's done all this. Look, look what God can do. Look at the power of Christ can do. And he sees the reality of who God is and it leads him to this, this place of worship. And so this morning, this is what I want us to do. I want us to dig into Revelation chapter four and I want us to see how worship leads us to mission. Like, like when God truly enters into your life, when, when the grace of God explodes in your heart and you see who God is, that there's a worship that happens and not just singing, but I, I, mean, I mean, like you think of the Lord, you think of your heart and, and what God's done for you and your heart is filled with worship. You're so blown away by God, by his character, by his grace, by his power. And you have this Ephesians 3.21 moment where you're like, God, you, you are so awesome. Like to God be the glory. In fact, I love how Paul in, in 2 Corinthians chapter 8 and 9, he was talking about giving there. And, and he's writing to this church in Corinth and the church in Corinth had a lot of stuff. They had a lot of means. And he's writing to this church in Corinth in 2 Corinthians chapter 8 and 9. And as he's writing to me, he's saying, hey guys, there's a great need. There's a mission I want you to give to, but I want to tell you about this church in Macedonia, this church that has nothing and how much they've given beyond their means. I love that. We, we live beyond our means. They gave beyond their means. What does that mean? It means like they're, they're saying, man, we, we just won't do what we're going to do because we're going to give to this cause. And, and Paul says in 2 Corinthians chapter 8, verse 1, he says to the, the Corinthian church, he goes, I want you to know about the grace of God in Macedonia. That Macedonia was so, the church there was so blown away by the grace of God. Their lives became so filled with worship because of that, they begged Paul to give. I mean, Paul actually said to them, no, you guys are hurting. You don't have enough resources. You don't need to give. I'm going to Corinth, man. They got a ton. And the church in Macedonia is like, no, we want to give. So Paul says to the church in Corinth, and he says to us here, he says, don't just give money. Don't just give your time. Don't just give your energy. But find God's grace. Let, let God blow your heart up. See God's grace and let worship come in. Anticipate God transforming your community. Anticipate God transforming your family or your life and let that worship fill your heart. That's the fuel. The fuel in us giving, giving our time or our energy or our, or our finances, the fuel that drives that kind of generosity is a heart filled with worship. Where we see Jesus and we say, Jesus, you are worthy. Jesus, you are so worthy. So how do we do this? How do we sacrifice for mission? How do, we, how do we give up our lives to follow Christ? How do we have that kind of reckless abandon? How do we have that dramatic life change? The key is this, you see God's grace. You look back at the cross and you see the love of God poured out on you through the cross that you could be transformed and changed. And then you look forward to eternity with him in glory. You see Jesus face to face in heaven. I mean, think about how that changes you. When, when you think about what, what's coming, when you understand that what we see around us right now, this isn't the end game. When you look around at the world around you and, and you, you compare it to what's coming in glory, you begin to see, man, the world around me, it's broken. It's, it's, it's dim in comparison. 
A view of heaven changes our perspective of a view of earth. It really does. I think of it this way. If you think about someone who's been on the mission field, they've gone to like a third world country. And I'm thinking of Mike and Jen and, 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 and Jay and Krista when they came back from Papua New Guinea. And, and both of them, they, they both did the same thing. When they came back, there was a culture shock coming back into Muskoka. I remember Jay saying he walked into Independent Grocer and was overwhelmed. He's just a, just a cereal aisle alone. Why? Because he'd experienced something in Papua New Guinea where, where you don't just go to a grocery store to grab something. And so his perspective, what, what, what the rest of us, we're kind of lulled into this kind of, this is how we live. This is just normal, right? Until you step out of it and see something else and you come back in like, whoa, this is different. This isn't normal. Now think about how you would view here and now if you saw eternity. I mean, if you really got a glimpse of the new heaven and the new earth, I mean, things that seem so significant and so important here and now begin to lose their power a little bit. Things that don't seem very important to us here and now suddenly seem way more important. I mean, with a view of heaven, it turns our world upside down. That's what the book of Revelation is, is trying to show us. It's, it's saying this, come and see reality. Come and see what, 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 what things are really like. And when you catch a glimpse of heaven, what happens is our whole goal in life shifts to where, where we say, I want to find as much happiness and as much joy in heaven as possibly I can. So with all the power, with all the might, with all the energy, with all the enthusiasm and intensity, with the most reckless abandon that I'm capable of, I want to pursue that joy. And so we want to catch this, this glimpse of heaven then. We want to be in this place where the, that's the fuel in my life, this fuel of setting my mind not on things that are seen, but on things that are unseen. To strive for, for not things on earth, but things above the earth. To, to pour out our lives for things that are eternal, not the here and now. Because if we catch a glimpse of heaven, it changes everything. So look at verse one of chapter four as we dig in. It says this, it says, after I, this is the Apostle John writing this, this letter. It says, after I looked and behold, a door standing open in heaven. And the first voice which I'd heard speaking to me like a trumpet said, come up here and I will show you what must take place after this. If you're taking notes this morning, here's our first main point this morning. It's this, heaven is open. Heaven is open. I mean, right away, before we even look at what's going on in heaven, that should blow us away. I mean, here's Jesus inviting John into heaven. John couldn't open the door. John couldn't break into heaven. He couldn't sneak into heaven. But God the Father opens the door through Jesus Christ for us to get into heaven. I mean, I don't want to just pass by that too quickly. I mean, that, that should blow us away. That, wait a minute, wait a minute. We have access to heaven? I mean, it's like you're talking to somebody, they just kind of casually in the middle of a conversation, you say, oh yeah, it's kind of like that time I was hanging out with the queen at Buckingham Palace. And anyway, what were we talking about? Wait a minute, what? You just said you were with the queen at Buckingham? You can't just let that go by? I mean, we, we can't just skip by this verse here. There's a door, not, not just a door anywhere, but a door that's been opened into heaven. We should stop and say, whoa, whoa, wait a minute, wait a minute, John. Did you just say the door to heaven is open to us? That there's a way to God. That there's a way to be in a relationship with the almighty creator of the universe. Now here's the thing. No one here, we, we can't open that door on our own. Right? No amount of good works will open the door. No amount of Sundays in, in church. No amount of giving. It doesn't matter how religious you are or how religious your parents were. You and I can't open that door on our own. Because, because we didn't do anything to be able to open that door. And, and, and our sin means that door is shut to us and we can't open it. But here's the good news. The amazing news is this. Your sin, my sin, doesn't stop God from opening the door. I love how it says in Romans 6, 23, it says that it says the wages of sin is death. Okay, the wages, the payment. Like when you work, the, the wages you get because of the work you do, that's the payment you get. Well, the payment we get for the sin that we do, Paul says is death. Scripture says is death. We've all sinned. That's our payment. And not, not just physical death, because everybody experiences that, but he's talking about a, a bigger death than that, a second death, what we call a spiritual death, that because of our sin, that if we die in our sin, we're separated from God for eternity. But the verse doesn't stop there. It says, but 
but that, that, that door is closed tight to heaven. There's no way you're getting in because of your sin, but, but the gift of God is eternal life through Jesus Christ, our Lord. Because Jesus lived the life that we couldn't live, that we had to have lived to be holy. Because Jesus died in our place to pay the penalty we should have paid for our sin. Because he died on our behalf, now the door is open. But here's the thing, you have to accept that gift. I mean, I can hold a gift out to you. If you, if you never accept it, if you ever take it, the gift isn't yours. And you, if you hear Sunday after Sunday the truth of the gospel and you, you just keep walking out of here going, yeah, yeah, I get it. Jesus saves, I get it. And you walk out, listen, that door doesn't open for you. You have to accept the fact that you're a sinner in need of a savior. Believe that Jesus lived the life that you couldn't live, that he died the death you should have died, that he rose again on the third day to conquer sin and Satan and yourself and death. And you confess to him, you're my savior, you're my Lord. I mean, it's such a simple process, but it has such huge implications for us. But listen, don't leave without accepting that gift. Don't leave with that gift unopened. Like there's no way, there's no way you, you leave birthdays not opening your gifts. There's no way as a kid that grandma gives you the card and you do this with the card, right? Because you want to see what check falls out, right? You, you don't leave those checks uncashed. And the greatest gift has been offered to you. I mean, have you opened it? Have you made it your own? Have you deposited that check of salvation, of God's grace? And Jesus says, come on up, the door's open. For those of you already following Christ and, and, and already have accepted that gift, how, how do you live out this reality? I love how John, who wrote Revelation, also wrote a few letters in 1 John chapter 3. He says this, he says, we are now God's children, and he says, we don't always look like God's children, right? Right? Can I get an amen? Sometimes we don't live that way, right? People look at you and go, man, for being a God's child, you certainly don't live like God's child. He says this, though. He says, but we know that when he appears, when Christ appears, we will be like him because we'll see him as he is. And then he says this, and everyone who hopes in him, in Christ, purifies themselves as he is pure. Now, what's John saying? He's saying, listen, when you put your hope in Christ, you're going to see Christ and you're going to be changed one day completely into his likeness. You put your hope in that. And, and when you put your hope in that, it changes the way you live right now. You begin now to purify yourself as he's pure. What he's saying is, as, as you look forward to the reward of one day, I will see Jesus face to face. It drives how you live today. When you don't have that hope, When my life does not look transformed, when I, I'm not living like, like a follower of Christ, here's, here's what we're saying. We're saying, Jesus, you're, you're not really what I'm hoping for right now. I'm not looking forward to you as my ultimate reward. Because when we see him as our reward, as our hope, it changes how we live today. When we see that door is open to us, all the other doors are put into perspective. So that when, when doors get closed here around us, when there's pain and hardship and the, that door seems closed, when that thing we, we so badly want, it seems like, man, the door's not opening to us, it puts it into perspective. But I have the door of heaven open. Listen, as a church, uh, in the middle of this campaign, we told you guys last week, hey, would you pray? Because we're asking if the, the arts committee will let us use the theater over there because it'll help us free up time and space and, and just make things easier to do the church here in Bracebridge. That door's been closed to us. I mean, thank you for praying. They said no. They said, no, we, we, we don't fit our, our, our mission statement. Uh, so we don't want we don't, we don't to free up that, that time that, that's, it's empty, but we don't want to give that to you during that time. And, and so what do you do with that? I mean, you pray they go bankrupt, right? No, you don't do that. <laughs> okay, I might have prayed that. No, you don't. You don't. What do you do? You say, that's just an earthly door. A door's been closed. I got the door to heaven open to me. You don't, like, you don't think that God's saying, you do, I, I know the door's closed. I, I got some stuff for you. It's okay. It's an earthly door that's been closed. It doesn't rock our faith. It doesn't stop us from moving forward. Listen, when things are hard here now, when following Christ is difficult, we got to shut some doors. Like, I'm not going in that direction because I'm a Christ follower now. Listen, there's a door in eternity that's open to us that makes all these other lame doors no longer control our hearts. 
The closed doors here don't have to carry the same weight. We don't need to put the same effort into trying to push doors open that are closed. We don't have to worry so much about, I gotta get this door of wealth open, this door of of acceptance, this door of of comfort or control. or Those things we put our hope in. I mean, when you see the door of heaven open to you, it changes everything. I mean, I was thinking about it this way. Just last year, it was in the fall that, that we went as a family to Canada's Wonderland. We went during the week in the fall. One of the blessings of homeschooling, there's a lot of curses to it, but that's a blessing. You get to go to Canada's Wonderland during the week in the fall, right? And the, and the good thing about that is there's not very many people there, right? Because they're all in school, lamos, right? So we get to hit up Canada's Wonderland. And, and because it's in the fall, it was pretty empty. And because it's empty, rides that you normally don't get to ride a lot on, you're like, Leviathan again? All right, why? Because you see there's no two-hour lineup. Listen, when there's two-hour lineups on, on the really good rides at Canada's Wonderland, you ride on the lame rides, right? But when you look and Leviathan's open, I'm not going in some spinny teacup today. We're hitting the big roller coasters, right? Right? Because it's been open to you. Because you, you're going to pursue that because it changes. Listen, when we see that the door of heaven is open to us, then we make the goal of our lives to strive for as much joy and happiness in eternity in heaven as we possibly can. That we pursue that truth of who we are because of Christ's death and resurrection. That all these other doors, I don't have to worry about them so much. Now what was it that John saw as he went up into heaven? What did he see? What blew him away? Look at the first thing that grabs his attention. Verse two says this, at once I was in the spirit. So he doesn't physically go to heaven, but somehow in the spirit, we don't know how that works out, but at once I was in the spirit and behold, a throne stood in heaven with one seated on the throne. The first thing that drew his attention, I I don't know about you, but if if I popped my head up into heaven, I don't know the things I would would see. What, What would draw my heart? I mean, would it be the streets of gold? Would it be the crystal sea? Would it be seeing other loved ones who have gone on? No, no, John said the first thing that caught my eye was the throne of God. If you're taking notes, there's our second main point this morning. God is on his throne. It's the first thing he sees. In fact, in in the first 11 verses of chapter four that we're gonna be reading this morning, 12 times the word throne is used. In the book of Revelation, over 40 times you hear about the throne. The throne's important. In fact, I would say the throne is the image of heaven. It's like the logo of heaven, right? It's the thing you think of when you think of heaven, you should think throne. Like if I were to say, hey, Paris, what's the first thought that comes to your mind? It's Eiffel Tower, right? Oh, I think Paris, I think Eiffel Tower. If I were to say Niagara Falls, you don't think of the city of Niagara Falls, you think of the, the actual Niagara Falls. That's their emblem, right? So I, I kind of picture this in heaven on all the highway signs, there's the logo of the throne, right? That's kind of the thing. It's the logo of heaven. It's what heaven's all about. It's the landmark. Now what's God doing on this throne? Look at verse two again. And once I was in the spirit, behold, a throne stood in heaven with one seated on the throne. I love that. God's sitting on the throne. He's not pacing around. He's not wringing his hands. He's, he, he's, he's not worried or strained or scratching his head or running around frantically trying to, trying to make things happen. He's seated. It's this picture of total control. It's, it's ruling power. It's God is in control. He's not stressed. He's not worried. He's not strained. He's in control. And I love that. Here's why. Because often my life isn't. Maybe you're the same. You, you look around and when life seems out of control, I love that we can have peace in the midst of the chaos. That, that we can have joy in the midst of pain. That we can have, have hope in the midst of tragedy. Why? Because we go, God's on his throne. He's at work. I mean, you think about John's world as he's writing this, as he's seeing this, Rome seems to be in charge. It seems to be that Caesar's on the throne. Um, Churches are being persecuted. Christians are being put to death. If you read through the first few chapters of Revelation, you see that the church, that most of the churches are messed up too. Ephesus had lost its first love. It didn't care about Jesus anymore. Smyrna and Philadelphia, they were being persecuted. Pergamum is out to lunch theologically. Thyatira is morally bankrupt. Stuff going on in the church that even the world watching in were were disgusted at. Sardis, outwardly religious, inwardly a dead church, just full of hypocrisy. All the disciples by this time had been been martyred. 
tortured, killed for their faith. John, he's a prisoner of Rome. He's, he's exiled to the island of Patmos as he's writing this. I mean, if ever things seemed out of control, if ever there was a, like, where is God right now? It's while John's writing this. But in the midst of that chaos, in those horrible times, God's in charge. I, mean, I love how it says a throne, it says stood in heaven. It's this word meaning it was, it was firmly placed. It was unmoved by events, unmoved by worldly leaders or history. That throne is fixed. And this, this view of a, a fixed throne in the midst of our trial, when, when nothing else going on around us seems secure, that you have a solid hope in a sovereign God sitting on his throne. When you could build your life on that rock. That God's not surprised by your circumstances. God's not surprised by what we're trying to do as a church on mission and looking at the amount of money we need to raise and the, the shortfall and all. He's not surprised by that. He's not surprised by the needs in our life. He's not surprised by your suffering, by your job loss, by your sickness. He's not, he's not, he's not surprised by family trouble. He's on the throne. Caesar's not on the throne. Satan's not on the throne. Your circumstances are not on the throne. God is in control. And so when you see the, the throne all the way through the book of Revelation, it seems to just be screaming out, God is sovereign. He's in control. You're in his hands. When life is hard and there doesn't seem like to be anything else to grab a hold of, I hope that there's, a, there's a, a truth here that has handles on it that you can grab a hold of and say, that's my hope. That's my security. Way more than, well, something good might come out of this. Way more than just keep your head up and try to be joyful. There's always this hope that we can, we can take comfort in the truth. God knows. God's at work. God's eternal. God's all-powerful. That's our sanctuary of hope. That's our strength. God is on his throne. God is in control. And John goes on to describe what he sees and, and it really brings him to this place of worship. And he begins to describe what he sees up there. And, and here's what I've been thinking as I'm reading through this passage. The only, the only way I could describe it is this. God is awesome. Now here, here's the problem with saying God is awesome. I think it's the only word you could use, but, but it's kind of an over, overused word, isn't it? We, we use that word awesome for everything. So we can say God is awesome. And Moose Tracks ice cream is awesome. <laughs> really, really, same awesome, right? Let's hear the, the word in the way I think it was meant to be heard when we say that God is awesome. God inspires awe. This feeling of reverence, this, this feeling of amazement, this, this is so far beyond words, I can't even describe it. I'll just call it awesome. Like fall on my face, jaw dropping, knees buckling, mind blowing, almost fear in the pit of my stomach. Like that is awesome. God is awesome. Seeing him changes everything. I mean, look at John's description in verse three. It says, and he who sat there had the appearance of Jasper and Carnelian. Now what's that? What's, what's Jasper? Jasper's the friendly ghost. I'm not sure how it fits. No, he's not. That's Casper, right? Jasper, they're not sure what Jasper is. It's used in another time in Revelation as well in the end of the book. But most, uh, most people who study this say Jasper might be an ancient word for, for diamond. It's the appearance of God. He, he, he's like this diamond that shines out. His glory bursts out as this, this light. And, and, and John's like, man, all I could see was this shining white diamond-like light. And you'll notice throughout this description, he keeps saying the appearance of, the appearance of. He, he can't even put words to it. It's like, God is so awesome. I can't even describe him. So let me give you some things that might kind of fit to help you out. It's like the appearance of this bright diamond. See, he shone like carnelian. That was this, this, this blood red ruby stone. It was this fiery bright rock. So John's saying at the center of the throne where God was, it's not this peaceful vision. It's like this flashing, brilliant, bright, pure, magnificent, almost a frightening experience. Like God is awesome. Ezekiel saw it and he fell on his face. Isaiah saw this and he fell on his face. 
The appearance of the Almighty God is just this clear and brilliant and blazing and fiery. I love what it says in Daniel 7, 9. It says that God's throne was ablaze with flames, that a river of fire was flowing out from before him. It's another way of describing it, saying, man, there's this, just this amazing scene in heaven with this bright throne and, and millions upon millions of angels worshiping. And John goes on, though, he says this at the end of that verse, verse 3, he says, And around the throne was a rainbow that had the appearance of an emerald. So in the center, you see this blazing holiness and purity, but around that is this rainbow, this symbol of God's grace. This promise that God gave back in Genesis, a promise of his faithfulness. Around his holiness is this, this picture of his grace. And so this, this view of, of God is awesome. Now, I think it's so awesome that John kind of like, I can't even describe it anymore. Let me tell you what's going on around it. And he goes on talking about what's going on around the throne. Look at verse four. He says, around the throne were 24 thrones and seated on the thrones were 24 elders clothed in white garments with golden crowns on their heads. And we're going to talk about them a little later. Let's keep going. Verse five, from the throne came flashes of lightning and rumblings and peals of thunder. And before the throne were seven burning torches of fire, which are the seven spirits of God. And before the throne, there was, as it were, a sea of glass like crystal. There's this shining sea in front. There's this fire of the Holy Spirit. Now the number seven in, in, in God's word, it's, it's usually a number of completeness, like the oneness of, of the Spirit of God, the completeness. And there's this lightning and peals of thunder. I mean, is there anything more powerful that makes you sit up than, than a, a massively huge thunderstorm? Like I'm 46, I still wake up scared when thunder goes off in my home, right? You ever, you hear burn, right? I do that. I've been watching the whole Hurricane Florence. What a lame name for a hurricane, by the way. This is like the most powerful thing ever, Florence. But anyway, sorry if your name's Florence or your grandma, I'm sure your grandma Florence is super powerful, right? But have you been watching this thing? Like you, you look at the satellite image of it when it was still over the ocean, how huge it was, how awesomely powerful it was. And now you see the live footage of it while it hits the shore and just what's going on with lightning and thunder and wind and rain. Now imagine seeing the throne of God surrounded by that hurricane. It's just awesome. I mean, you get a glimpse of that glory of God and it changes everything. When, when people meet God, they're changed forever, radically changed. Suddenly those things we worry about, suddenly those things we put energy into, suddenly those things we normally complain about do not seem so huge and awesome when you see the awesomeness of this hurricane-like God, our lives are changed. And you see that all through Scripture when, when people meet God. You, you see John in the beginning of Revelation. He meets Jesus in his glory, and it says he fell down on his face like he was dead, just like Isaiah, just like Ezekiel. If we're still running around messing with, with, with sinful pursuits, if we still have our heart and our mind grabbed by so many other horizontal things, maybe we need a fresh look of heaven again. Maybe we need to see the awesomeness of God because our life pursuits will be changed. You, you don't leave an encounter like John had. You don't leave an encounter of the awesome God and leave the same way. Moses, when he saw God, his face shone. Jacob, he walked with a limp, broken and humbled. Paul was transformed from a, a murdering, hateful man to the greatest missionary ever. The disciples changed their whole careers because they met Jesus. I mean, you, you can hear story after story of people right here in our church who would say, man, before I met Jesus, you wouldn't believe who I was. Man, things have so changed for me. Since I really started pursuing Jesus, everything's changed. And if, if we would see God's awesomeness, how we live, how you do life as a spouse, how would it change that? How you are as a parent, how you are at the workplace, how you are at school, the things we pursue, the things we devote our lives to, I mean, our lives should be radically changed. Let's keep reading and see what's going on around this throne. Verse six goes on, it says, and around the throne on each side of the throne are four living creatures, 
full of eyes in front and behind. The first living creature like a lion, the second living creature like an ox, the third living creature with the face of a man, and the fourth living creature like an eagle in flight. And the four living creatures, each of them with six wings, are full of eyes all around and within. And day and night, they never cease to say, holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty, who was and is and is to come. And whenever the living creatures give glory and honor and give thanks to him who is seated on the throne, who lives forever and ever, the 24 elders fall down before him who is seated on the throne and worship him who lives forever and ever. And they cast their crowns before the throne. Here's our last point this morning. God is worthy of my worship. God is worthy of my worship. Just quickly, before we jump into this whole idea of worship, notice what the worship centers around. It centers around the throne. It centers around Jesus Christ. All of the worship centers around that. So I was even thinking this through as as we look to being a church that now splits Right? So, so we're going to have, have three locations. And, and part of the man, how do we stay united in that? How do we stay one church on mission together that way? By having our focus on Jesus. How do we stay united? I mean, what keeps us together? The throne is the key. I love how A.W. Tozer, he said it this way. He says, has it ever occurred to you that 100 pianos all tuned to one, the same tuning fork are automatically tuned to each other? So 100 worshipers meeting together, each one looking to Christ, are closer to each other than they could ever be. I mean, if if we want unity, we, we get close to the throne. I mean, in your marriage, get close to the throne. In your family, get close to the throne. What brings unity in in our lives is not common hobbies or common interests. The thing that will unite us as families, as a church, is the throne. Disunity happens in relationships when our eyes are taken off of Christ, when our eyes are taken off of the door to heaven is open to me. We begin to focus on other things and, and disunity comes in. What's this focus look like? What's this worship look like? All through Revelation, it seems that whenever God is revealed, heaven bursts out in song. That's kind of how I look at it. When we get to heaven, I'll be as a preacher, I'm out of a job. No more preaching in heaven. Eric, he's got to keep going. He's going to keep working, right? Because there's going to be worship in heaven, a lot of worship in heaven. I mean, we're just practicing right here what is going to be amazing in heaven. You see these 24 elders. Now, what do they represent? What are these 24 elders? Most would say that the 12, there'd be 12 as the 12 tribes of Israel. The other 12 would be the 12 apostles in the New Testament. So you can't have both Old and New Testament followers coming together, being represented around the throne. So that's us. That's us represented around the throne in robes of white. I love that. Why do we have robes of white? Why would us broken, busted up people get robes? Because we have Christ's righteousness. So there's the, the us worshiping, all of humanity worshiping around the throne. Who else? You've got these creatures. The same creatures are, are described by Isaiah and Ezekiel as well. Now, what do these represent? Now, some scholars kind of give sort of a, well, this is what they could, could represent. Maybe they're the four most powerful of God's creatures. Right? You've got the lion, the king of the beasts. You've got the ox, the the strongest, most powerful of the domesticated animals. You've got the eagle, right? The most powerful bird. And you've got a man, the one who God put over in charge of all the creatures. And they've got these wings and and eyes all over them. Like nothing gets by them as they guard the throne. Now, now whatever these are, I don't know. I I can't describe them. I can't give you the, the theological everything about them. But here's the one thing we do know. We know what they're doing. They're worshiping day and night. Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty who was and is and is to come. Like imagine that. Picture these huge creatures. Imagine you come in here this morning and and happening right here this morning is that. You've got all these creatures all in here this morning. I I mean, what would that do? I mean, I don't know about you, but if I walked in and that's what I saw, man, it would change me, all right? Actually, I probably need to change my pants for the next service, right? If, we, if I saw that, like it, it would be awesome. It would be fearful. It would be incredible. And what are they doing though? These unbelievably awesome creatures, they're bowing down to worship. They're, they're calling out holy, holy, holy. Not just saying it once. 
Not even saying it twice. In, in Hebrew literature, when you say something twice, that's like us putting something in bold, underline all caps. Not even twice, but three times. Holy, holy, holy. To the ultimate degree, God is pure and majestic and divine and, and uniquely set apart from everything else, unique and awesome. And, and here's these unbelievable creatures are saying, hey, forget about us. Don't be in awe of us because it's all about him. So our response then, what is our response to this? Look at verse 11. This is how we respond. Worthy are you, O Lord and God, to receive glory and honor and power. For you created all things and by your will, they existed and were created. Look over at chapter five, verse 12. And, and you, you see this similar thing being said as we worship. Worthy is the lamb who was slain to receive power and wealth and wisdom and might and honor and glory and blessing. We worship, that's our response. Here's the thing, every single one of us is hardwired to worship. Everybody in our world worships something. Maybe for some, it's sports. Right? You're emotionally moved by your sports and you would study and know all the stats. You would put all the time and effort into the object of your adoration. You'd spend money to go and actually see them and you'd have shouts of praise when it's successful and shouts of joy. And so what's going on in that hockey arena, in that football stadium? It's worship. Why so much attention given to celebrities? It's worship. Why is our world so, so, so enamored, so has so much attention on sex? It's worshiping it. So what do you worship? I mean, what takes your time? What takes your energy? What takes your attention? Because that's what you worship. So why would we sacrifice? Why, why, would we, why would we give to the mission of the gospel? Why would we give financially? Why would we give our lives with a reckless abandonment? Because Jesus is worthy. You see the disciples left everything for Christ. You see in the book of Acts that, that people were giving everything. What about us? I mean, we can be, we should be just as radical as the early church. Why? Why would I say that? Because Revelation 5.12 says, worthy is the lamb who is slain to receive power and wealth and wisdom and might and honor and glory and blessing. You notice what it says there. It doesn't say Jesus needs my wealth and power. No, it says Jesus is worthy of it. We don't give because Jesus needs it. We give because he's worthy. And when you get to heaven, you will shout this out. Why? Because you'll believe it. Because you'll see Jesus face to face and you'll be filled with worship and you'll see so clearly at that moment, Jesus, you are worthy. Here's the thing, listen, listen. I don't wanna wait just for that day, that, that day that I see Jesus face to face for that to be the first time I realize he's worthy. The first time I realize he's worthy of my wealth, my energy, my honor, my might. I mean, I wanna get to heaven and join with you all in that worship service, knowing that I've been saying it my whole life. This need we have for what God's gonna do in our communities, the ability for us to give, it's just another throne we get to throw, another crown we get to throw down at the throne and say, Jesus, you're worthy of this. The need is great. The lives that we wanna see impacted in our town as we reach out with the love of Christ, I mean, that people would really see Jesus, it's that we'd have more people join with us and say, wow, Jesus is worthy. That we'd have more people beside us in eternity saying, thank you for what you gave because now I'm here with you saying Jesus is worthy. That, that view of heaven, that when we see what the elders saw, when we see these creatures, when we see what John saw that'll drive us. Listen, that's what will drive us as a church in this next season God has us in. That when we see scripture say that you boldly can come into the throne room of God in prayer, this is the throne room we're talking about. When you pray, that's where you are, in that throne room. You're talking to this very same God, this, this lightning and thunder and colors and shining and creatures worshiping, that's the God. That's the God we're talking to when we call out to him. And that changes everything.
In fact, as the worst team comes up this morning, as we end off this morning, I want to ask you to just stand with me right now. That you, that you would stand up as we get ready to worship. And, and as you stand up, that you would stand up and, and just around the room, we'd bow our heads and close our eyes. Before we respond in worship, I, I want us to, to picture together who we're worshiping. And so right now, just with your, your eyes closed, that you begin to picture what we've just read about. You, you'd picture that throne. With God sitting on it, who's, who's shining out with this, this blinding light like, like diamonds and rubies. That there's this rainbow encircling that throne. That, that you could see the 24 other thrones and, and, and those elders in white clothes with crowns on. And they're, they're, they're laying them down in worship. You, you can see the flashes of lightning and rolls of thunder. You, you see the sea of glass all around the four living creatures. And, they're singing, holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty who was and is and is to come. And then we, we would join with the elders at the throne on our faces, laying our own crowns at his feet. We would say, worthy are you, our Lord and God. Worthy is the lamb who was slain to receive power and wealth and wisdom and might and honor and glory and blessing. Now to him who is able to do far more abundantly than all we ask or think, according to the power at work in us, to him be the glory in the church. And in Christ Jesus throughout all generations, forever and ever, amen. Heavenly Father, I pray that even right now in this moment, I pray that you would do what only you could do. That even now you'd be breaking down idols and strongholds. You'd help us to let go of, of our security, of our comfort, of, of those other doors that we're pressing in on and we're so worried about that, God, we would see you. And be able to let go of our pride, let go of our fear. And even now begin to take a, a posture, the same posture that we're gonna be taking in eternity, that we would cast our earthly crowns at your feet and say, Jesus, you're worthy. You're worthy to receive power and wealth and honor and glory and blessing. Jesus, you are worthy. Father, I pray that even right now that would be true in our lives today. We need your spirit to work in our hearts to have that kind of worship, the kind of worship we know we'll be singing in heaven, Lord God, that it would be true today. Let a view of your glory in heaven change us even now. Because Jesus, you're worthy. I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.